0: in a minute. Uh, I, want to, I want to emphasize to you today that I want you to uh, to really pay close attention to what we're going to be talking about today because this is this is uh, the the halfway point basically in our course and this is the pivotal information uh, that is key to the to the rest of the course. Because this is uh, transitioning out of what is kind of a longer, uh, older history that we talked about with the Robert Barron era and the McKinley administration and uh, the, the other uh, issues to be raised. This is the pivotal period that we're talking about right here at the end of the Cold War, uh, and uh, so what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be talking about this for just about an hour today, and I want to leave the thirty minutes that we have at the end of this class here together for discussing this stuff. So I want to I want you on notice kind of ahead of time that I'm gonna I'm gonna stop right at the uh, at the uh, five thirty mark or so or the five fifteen mark probably then we'll have the like other half an hour to talk about these materials because as you know we're then we're gonna go over to a Porter uh, and have a discussion there that I want to focus on, I'm not going to ask you yet about who all got to see Gone Baby Gone. I'll do that at the beginning of the class. I'll let you be anxious if you haven't seen it uh, between now and then, uh, but I, I, want to, I want to talk about this subject matter that we're going to be discussing here uh, from last Tuesday and today uh, because it's, it's so important that uh, last Tuesday I, I we began the conversation about this extraordinarily important period in the closing months of World War II. I pointed out to you that, uh, that, that with the Battle of Stalingrad and uh, the collapse of the German 5th Army uh, in front of the gates of Stalingrad, that, that there was the German surrender uh, of the 5th Army on February 3rd of 1943 really marked the, the, the turning point of the war. Uh, because the United States uh, Sixth Fleet had already destroyed the Japanese Navy, basically the Battle of Midway, earlier uh, in 1942, in June of 1942. And so virtually everybody knew that the war uh, was going to be won by the Allies. Uh, And so the people started taking steps to prepare for the end of the war. Uh, And uh, that I pointed out that despite the fact that this uh, cabal, this group of 30 to 50 men and their kind of uh had, had in fact uh, been caught red-handed, basically, uh, in 1934, uh, prior to the war, uh, the uh, plotting to overthrow, have a military coup against Franklin Roosevelt. And despite the fact that they were caught basically having direct face-to-face meetings uh, with Alan Dulles and John Foster Dulles, with uh, Adolf Hitler, uh, and giving the green light to Hitler to become the chancellor of Germany to open up the entire Third Reich. And despite the fact that they were caught red-handed financing the rise of the Third Reich, indeed the purchase of the international headquarters of the Third Reich, uh, that, uh, and then continuing to fund the, the Third Reich, even after Germany had declared war against us. Uh, in December of 1941, they continued f- funding and providing strategic military uh, equipment to the, the German military all the way through 1942, until they were finally caught doing this uh, and a commission of the United States Congress investigated them and ordered the, the seizure of their property, a lot of these people, Prescott Bush and George Herbert Walker and a number of others, but as I pointed out, they went out and they secured as their lawyer to help them, Alan Dulles, who was the lawyer for Brown Brothers Harriman and a senior partner in Sullivan and Cromwell, who basically engaged in a, in a scheme of hiding Uh, their uh, their, uh, stock certificates and stuff and hiding them so they couldn't be impounded by the federal government so that they had those uh, all after the war. So despite the fact that they have been caught doing this, I pointed out that they still found themselves here in the closing months of World War II that they had in fact established uh, a, a detente Uh, of sorts with Franklin Roosevelt and had come into the highest levels of the State Department, the Defense Department, the Office of Special Services. Uh, They had filled these ranks and had offered to provide their uh, technical expertise and their business expertise to the war effort of the United States. Uh, And this put them in a strategic position in the closing months of World War II to uh, undertake, uh, or begin at that point, the undertaking of over a dozen major strategic steps uh, that that were completely consistent with their having, prior to the war, built up Germany as the bulwark against Bolshevism in Europe, and was completely consistent with them having supported the Third Reich, all the way up through and including when we were at war with them, uh, so that these these dozen events that I was I began talking about uh, last Tuesday, I had pointed out to you that because of their strategic positions that they held uh, in these waning months of World War II, that they in fact actively participated in facilitating the high command of the German Third Reich, both their political Leaders and their military leaders in the SS facilitated their fleeing uh, Europe and being smuggled into Argentina, in Uruguay, in Paraguay, in Brazil, in Chile, uh, and that they also facilitated uh, getting false identifications and false names for these people, and passports, and birth certificates, etc. All these, all these things were being done by the specialists. That, uh, that were involved as agents of the OSS. And, uh, and so, that this, and that they did this in cooperation, as I pointed out, with Pope Pius XII, who was himself a rabid anti communist or pro fascist, indeed, along with Cardinal Lavio, his Secretary of State. Now, I, I want to direct your attention to a couple works that you might want to take a look at that haven't been assigned reading for you it would be very helpful, and I've, I've uh, we had two copies of this one book. That I was going to put on reserve, but I've, I've ordered another one that we can put in. That with regard to these the elite uh, aristocrats uh, that were were involved in this, I'm, I'm going to give you a, a book that you can that you can read on this, uh, because one of the one of the uh, chapters in the book talks about these aristocrats. Uh, positioning themselves in the State Department, Defense Department, and the, uh, the OSS, et cetera, okay? uh, at the, uh, toward the end of the war. And this, this book is, uh, is a book that's called The Old Boys, The uh, American Elite in the Origins of the American CIA. And it's written by a fellow named Burton Hirsch, H-E-R-S-H. Uh, and I'll, I've got a copy of it on the way uh, and we'll hopefully dig out my other two copies of it to make it available for you. Uh, uh, and and with, regard, with regard to the second issue that I'm talking about, their active participation in facilitating the escape of the, uh, the Nazi high command and the, and the SS into, into South America, there's another book that's very important on this. Uh, that is called, In God's Name. And it talks about the, the role that the Vatican played in this and how the Vatican under Pope Pius XII uh, participated in uh, allowing the embezzlement of some billion dollars from the Vatican Bank uh, in partnership with the Banco Ambraziano, uh in Italy that they embezzled a, a, a billion dollars, and half of it was, uh, was secretly transported down to Argentina, uh, to Perón, the, the fascist leader in Perón, uh, and was distributed among these Nazi high command and SS officers that were hiding under assumed names in South America. And the other half of it went to Solidarity in Poland, that helped fund the, uh, the operations of Solidarity to rise up against the Soviet Union. Uh, and so that, that book is called In God's Name. Uh, and there's a second book called God's Banker, uh, both of which deal with this. and They're both by David Yallop, Y-A-L-L-O-P. Uh, and so that what I want to do is just to flesh in a little more detail for you on the first of these two major strategic steps that these people engaged in, the uh, the uh, positioning of themselves in these in these positions uh, in the OSS and State Department and Defense Department, and the second one is uh, assisting and facilitating the escape of the Nazi high command and the Waffen SS down into into South America. The third uh, activity that they engaged in that I pointed out to you briefly was that they took steps to stop the a substantial portion of the war crime prosecutions against the high command of the Nazi uh, officials. Uh, and I, I pointed out the, uh, the movie that you might take a look at called Judgment at Nuremberg. Uh, that It's actually a Stanley Kramer directed movie written by Abby Mann that talk about this. Uh, but there's, a, there's a, a specific example, because there's some individuals that we're going to be tracking starting now into the second half of the course that are going to be key men who are part of the kind of the second generation of these kind of ruling elite here that we're going to be dealing with. And this this has to do with the steps that were taken uh, in the, the final months of World War II to attempt to protect specific high command officials of the Nazis. And one of these was a a major general by the name of Karl Wolf. Karl Wolf uh, was in fact the chief of staff for Heinrich Himmler. Uh, And uh, Karl Wolf uh, also facilitated the providing of slave labor uh, from the the Jewish concentration camps uh, to the major corporations uh, some of which is talked about in Schindler's List, that movie. Uh, but Karl Wolf uh, was surrounded uh, in 1945, early 1945. He was surrounded by partisans uh, in Italy, and they trapped him in this major castle. Uh, and, uh, and Alan Dulles, uh, who was in the State Department in Germany, Uh, intervened on his behalf and actually sent uh, a a team of people in to to save him. Uh, There were two SS men uh, and uh, some people from his State Department staff. And he sent them in uh, and and told the, the partisans that were there that they were arresting him. And they moved in and took him into custody and assisted him in escaping and uh, getting not only out of the hands of the partisans, but also escaping entirely. Uh, and, and Alan Dulles was the man who orchestrated that entire operation. That's sort of a concrete example of the kind of steps that these people were, were taking. And then I pointed out that the fourth thing that they had done is I pointed out that they had made this deal with the uh, Nazi major general, Reinhard Galen the head of the Waffen SS's anti-Soviet and anti-eastern bloc intelligence, in that they actually exercised their good offices from inside the OSS and from inside the State Department uh, and inside the Defense Department to actually secure for him the position as the head of uh, uh, intelligence, the intelligence office of West Germany after World War II. Uh, and I pointed out additionally that they created this anti communist special warfare training academy uh, that was in Oberammergau in Bavaria uh, under the leadership of Major General Otto Skorzeny, uh and that they, t- they began training uh, men from all of the allied nations in this anti communist special warfare. But in, it was in large part a major indoctrination center. That very similar to what had been involved in the Ordensbergen that I told you about, uh, which was a major Nazi uh, training facility for SS officers and potential deputy Führers, that these same personnel were involved in training these men, uh, starting at the end of uh, World War II. And I pointed out, right at the end of the class, uh, that they had actually uh, commandeered Uh, some 1.2 trillion dollars in gold and silver and platinum and precious jewels, which they uh, uncovered in the Philippines uh, in December of 1945, and they secreted this and brought it to a number of banks in uh, Switzerland, and they stored it there, and they began issuing uh, gold certificates Predicated upon the value of the, of the uh, gold and, and silver and uh, platinum and jewels that they had uh, on reserve at the banks. They generated these, these gold certificates, which they then gave to Nazis, uh, former Nazis, that they could use them like cash. You could bring one of these certificates to a bank and put it on deposit in the bank, uh, and it was for, for hypothetically as much as a million dollars and you bring it and bring it to the bank, and they leave it on deposit, and then you can draw cash against it. Uh, and that was what they did, and they put this entire cash of treasure uh, under the custody of the Anderson Trust, uh, the, the three trustees of which were Robert Lovett and Robert Anderson, both senior partners in Brown Brothers, Harriman, uh, and the fellow being of John J. McCloy. And John J. McCloy, uh, was made the governor general of Germany by the uh, Allies at the end of World War II. And so you got McCloy, who's part of the trustees of this secret trust uh, in private hands, not in government hands, not under the control of the Defense Department or the State Department or the Executive Office of the President. No knowledge whatsoever about it on the part of Congress. Uh, but it was administered by this purely private group in Brown Brothers Harriman, Uh, and John J. McCloy, the third of the trustees, was made the governor general of Germany. And he helped oversee these efforts to to push back against the prosecution of the Nazis, and he played a major instrumental role in getting the sentences commuted of the people that were in fact uh, convicted and were sentenced to life in prison for their crimes against humanity. And it turns out they ended up only having to serve two to three years, and then they then they were released. And John J. McCloy and Alan Dulles uh, played major roles in uh, in getting that to happen. Uh, and uh, and I also uh, uh, told you also about Project Overcast, that these guys, in addition to Project Paperclip, which was the the taking into custody as many of the German rocket scientists as they could, in and ta- in bringing them over and giving them United States citizenship. They did the same for the anti-communist political cadre uh, of the of the Third Reich uh, under a project called Operation Overcast. And what I want to do today is I want to turn our attention to one of the other major steps that were that were that was taken at the end of uh, World War II, and those, uh, right in the aftermath of World War II, and this is the creation of the American Central Intelligence Agency. I mentioned to you uh, a couple lectures back that when World War II began, uh, Franklin Roosevelt established a thing called the Office of Strategic Services, and the Office of Strategic Services was uh, populated largely by lawyers and, uh, and investment bankers and, and uh, Ivy League college graduates. Uh, and, and these people designed special covert operations and psychological operations against the, uh, the Germans in World War II. But these people continued to be in positions of power in the waning months of World War II. And what they did is they began to shift all of their attention toward engaging in special covert operations against the Soviet Union. Even though the Soviet Union were allies with the United States uh, at the time, in the the closing months of World War II, these OSS people, once they knew that they were going to be defeating Germany, and that Germany was in the process of of, uh, trying to position itself to surrender, these guys started turning their attention directly to developing psychological operations and covert operations against the Soviet Union. Uh, Indeed, uh, I might make another point that that, uh, Alan Dulles, the fellow that I mentioned that was the lawyer for Brown Brothers Harriman and a senior partner in Sullivan and Cromwell was in fact in the State Department I mentioned in Germany. Not only did he play this instrumental role in helping uh, uh, Major General Carl Wolf Escape from the partisans. He also was in fact engaged in attempting to negotiate a completely separate peace treaty with Germany Because as you remember he had been the lawyer after the Versailles treaty negotiations back in 1919 He had been assigned to be the lawyer for Germany in negotiating the contracts for THE LOANS THAT THEY WERE GOING TO BE GETTING TO PAY THE WAR REPARATIONS, AND SO HE HAD THESE RELATIONSHIPS WITH THEM. HE ATTEMPTED TO uh, NEGOTIATE A SEPARATE peace, ENTIRELY SEPARATE FROM THE REST OF THE STATE DEPARTMENT, IN uh, THE PRESIDENT'S OFFICE, uh, AND he, HE ATTEMPTED TO DO THIS WITH A MAX, H-O-H-E-N-L-O-H-E, WHATEVER THAT IS. HOENBLOW. THERE IT GOES. THAT'S THE GUY. Uh, And and Dulles tried to engage in this major peace negotiation with them So that the Germans would not have to make an unconditional surrender They would agree that they would turn over Hitler himself But in fact it would preserve the Third Reich To be able to continue to govern in Germany and that's what Alan Dulles was engaged in trying to do Uh, and so that this, but these people went on to participate in trying to, to advocate very strongly. That when, as soon as Roosevelt died, Roosevelt died uh, in April of 1945, and Truman came in, and they began to immediately uh, take advantage of the fact that Truman was a new guy on board, had been basically this fairly ineffectual vice president under Franklin Roosevelt, uh, but when Roosevelt died on April 12th of 1945 and Truman came to the office of the presidency, these people began to move in on him uh, out of their various positions in OSS and State Department, Defense Department, and began to advocate that because, because Franklin Roosevelt had, uh, had uh, indicated that they were going to be closing down the OSS uh, after the war was over. And these people wanted to continue having a covert operations uh, agency in place to undertake covert operations against the Soviet Union, even though they were military allies with them. In uh, that, that, uh, This book that I mentioned to you, uh, Burton Hirsch's book, The American Elite and the Origins of the American Central Intelligence Agency, goes into great detail showing how these Ivy League lawyers and financiers and bankers uh, and and, uh, partners in uh, Brown Brothers Harriman uh, and Dylan Reed, (coughs) they moved in on Truman and they started writing memos to him and got Truman to assign a commission to look into this issue of establishing an ongoing covert operations agency. Uh, And he put in charge of it Robert Lovett, who was the senior partner in Brown Brothers Harriman and one of the three trustees of the Anderson Trust. And Robert Lovett wrote a major memo uh, to him as the head of this commission, advocating that such an agency be established and that the agency not only be an intelligence coordinating uh, agency, but that they be authorized and empowered to engage in covert operations Against all communists, not just against the Soviet Union, but against all persons engaged in subversion uh, against the United States or our allies. And you need to remember now that this concept of subversion uh, does not limit itself to actual agents or operatives of the Soviet Union that virtually anyone who is identified as engaging in subversive activity against the United States was brought under this uh, rubric. And there were all kinds of people who had uh, openly uh, opposed war uh, and had spoken out against war, uh, both in World War One and World War II, that were arrested for subversion uh, against the United States. But the fact is that even though that concept had been developed during wartime, in World War I and World War II, these people advocated that there be continuing, a continuing categorization of people as subversives, uh, indicating that they were somehow fellow travelers or that they were somehow sympathetic to the cause of socialism and that that made them a, a, a de facto, if not a de jura, uh, ally of the Soviet Union, and that therefore they should be targeted by this agency. And uh, Robert Lovett uh, advocated that, and a man by the name of William D. Pauley, uh, who's going to become a central character for us in the second half of this course, uh, William D. Pauley. Uh, ended up being put in charge of an agency, uh, of a commission, uh, w- which was named the Doolittle Commission, uh, after Jimmy Doolittle, uh, the American uh, a pilot, uh, an airman who was a decorated airman from World War I, uh, and he had, he had led the raids against uh, Japan, the island of Japan in World War II, but when he was made the head of this commission, uh, it was done only because William Polley suggested that, he, that Doolittle be the head of the commission, not Pauly. Uh, uh, and Doolittle at the time was the executive vice president of the Shell Oil Petroleum Corporation. Uh, and, his, and the other guy that was the de facto head of this was William Pauly. And William Pauly was an extraordinarily wealthy uh, multi-millionaire who owned sugar plantations in Cuba, was a close personal friend of Batista, who was the fascist uh, head of the government, a, a PO first, and then Batista, the two fascist dictators in Cuba. And he owned uh, all of the public transportation facilities uh, in Cuba, the, the, the uh, bus services and the trolley car services in, in Cuba. And he was an extraordinarily uh, aggressive uh, right-wing guy. And uh, he in fact uh, uh, provided airplanes uh, for the Flying Tigers Uh, prior to the United States entry into World War I, or excuse me, before their entrance into World War II, he was providing airplanes to fly over into Asia to oppose the Japanese in their incursions into China in Southeast Asia, even though the United States wasn't at war. He did not engage in any kind of warfare against Germany, but he was active in trying to have a private uh, enterprise organized to send military equipment and planes in to help uh, the, uh, the uh, nationalist Chinese uh, against, uh, against the Japanese. Uh, all the way from 1931 to 1939. Uh, so this, this guy, William D. Pauley ended up heading up, in fact, the Doolittle Commission. And, uh, and here's, here's, what they, here's what he said. He was the principal author uh, of this report. And what he said was as follows. There's an important requirement that we establish an aggressive, covert, psychological, political, and paramilitary organization that will be more effective, more unique, and indeed, more ruthless than that which may be employed by our enemy. And no one should be permitted to stand in the way of the prompt, efficient, and secure accomplishment of our mission. Remember that quote. No one should be permitted to stand in the way of the prompt, efficient, and secure accomplishment of our mission. And he then goes on to say, it is now clear that we are facing an implacable enemy whose avowed objective is world domination by whatever means and at whatever cost. And as George Carlin once said, that's our job, uh, <laughs> you know. So he said, and he said, there can be no rules in such a game. Hitherto acceptable norms of human conduct must not apply. If the United States is to survive, long-standing American concepts of fair play must be reconsidered. He said, we must develop an effective organization that will learn how to subvert, sabotage, and destroy our enemies by any means necessary. And it says, and here, here's a class, I want, you to, I want you to remember this one Quote, it may become necessary that our American people be made acquainted with and come to understand and support this fundamentally repugnant philosophy. OK, so here you have it. This is William D. Pauly, uh this this megalomaniacal multimillionaire uh, sugar, sugar plantation uh, uh, owner and uh, in, in rabid fascist friend of Batista down in Cuba and a very close personal friend of Alan Dulles and a very close personal friend of Henry Luce. The man who owned Time Magazine, in Life Magazine, in Fortune Magazine, that had put on the cover eight separate times between 1924 and 1934, eight separate times, the pictures of Hitler or Mussolini or, or Franco advocating that fascism be established in the United States, uh, and he was a uh, a, a, a very uh, a very close friend of uh, Richard Nixon. Uh, and uh, he was a, a very in 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 this report, he actually said this is number six recommendation that he made uh, in his in the Doolittle report he said to maintain the the position of director above all political considerations in order to assure his tenure and continuity, just as is the case in the FBI. Now what this meant was, is that here you have, uh, here you have William D. Pauley authoring this proposal to the president uh, for the establishment of this organization at the time that Alan Dulles had just been made the director of this central intelligence agency. Allen Dulles, who had assisted uh, the, the uh, major general to escape, Carl uh, Wolf, the chief of staff of Himmler. Uh, the guy who, in, in fact, was uh, trying to negotiate a less than unconditional surrender on the part of Germany. Uh, the man who was the legal counsel for Brown Brothers Harriman, who had actually represented Prescott Bush Uh, and uh, George Herbert Walker in attempting to conceal their ownership of the corporations that had been found to have been guilty uh, of war crimes by supporting and providing military equipment to Germany after they declared war on the United States. He is made the head of the Central Intelligence Agency. And William Pauley recommends that he be left on one administration after another. Whether it was Republican or Democratic, just like was the case with, with uh, J. Edgar Hoover uh, in the FBI, uh, and so that this this uh, uh, this issue of the creation of the Central Intelligence Agency was was extremely important because they had the influence over Truman after he had become president. They were able to persuade him that. It was necessary for him to establish what came to be known as the Truman Doctrine. And the Truman Doctrine uh, was, was uh, Truman's speech that he gave to a joint assembly of the Congress saying that the United States could not allow any the people of any country in Europe to exercise the folly of allowing the reins of their government to fall into the hands of communists or socialists, even if it was a desire on the part of a majority of their people. And he, he maintained this uh, policy as long as, as he was president, and it was under the whip hand of these people that had instilled, installed themselves in these high-level positions in the, in the Defense Department, in the State Department, and in the OSS. And there's a portion of the actual Doolittle Report that goes into some detail talking about uh, the fact that the, uh, the early history, the covert side of the CIA, uh, took over in 1947 from the former Central Intelligence Group the covert side of the CIA started with the Office of Special Operations, which was a remnant of the former OSS. And so that there's an explicit acknowledgement in on the face of this report, which was classified, a classified report, but it's, it's been declassified now. It was declassified by the church committee that we'll talk about later. That was chaired by Senator Frank Church of Idaho, that was investigating the criminal covert operations of the Central Intelligence Agency. And they released this, uh, and you can find it actually on the internet, if you just look up the Doolittle Report. Uh, and, uh, and so they, they talk about the fact that there is this direct link between the hierarchy in the OSS at the end of the war, and the creation of the Central Intelligence Agency. Okay. And so that, uh, now, and in, in very importantly, the, in, and I, want you to, I want you to, I'm going to tell you a little story here, uh, but it, it goes to this point, and that is that these men who had ensconced themselves in these positions, these Ivy League lawyers and bankers and, uh, and financiers and stuff, and businessmen who had, after their people had been caught, trying to support Germany, even after they declared war on us, when they came into the United States military and the OSS, put themselves into these positions, uh, and that had facilitated the escape of the high command of the Nazis and the SS down into the South American countries, what they did is they participated in setting up a base of operations in Argentina, and Brazil uh, of the hierarchy of the, of the fascist regime and they worked directly with them to overthrow any and all of the democratically elected governments in South America. What happened is they basically attempted to transfer the Nazi party in the Waffen SS out of Germany and Europe down into South America and to function from that base of operations. To continue their longer term war, their struggle uh, that they called it, uh, to, to establish fascism around the world. And that these people never gave up their basic vision of taking over the world entirely and establishing what they later were referred to as full spectrum dominance uh, over the planet. And uh, I'll tell you just a, a quick story about this. When, uh, when we filed the, uh, the Iran-Contra uh, case uh, against people who are sort of the progeny of this group, in fact, Theodore Shackley, who was the German-American translator for Reinhard Galen that I mentioned to you, that came with Reinhard Galen over to Fort Hunt outside of Washington, D.C. for that three-week period and carried on these negotiations with the OSS in the State Department in order to make Reinhard Galen the head of the West German intelligence at the end of the war. This guy, Theodore Shackley, uh, then went back into, into Germany and was serving as the deputy to Galen when he actually became the head of the, of the West German intelligence. He then, when the Central Intelligence Agency was created by the National Security Act of 1947, He came back to the United States and was in the entering class of the CIA. He was trained out at the fish farm that they have down in Virginia. uh, At the the CIA, uh, uh, well, they didn't have the CIA building at that time, but that was the the base they operated from. And he became uh, a member of the entering class of the Central Intelligence Agency in 1947. And he then was assigned by the CIA to go back to Germany to be the deputy to Galen to continue to be the deputy to Galen, and he was sent to the anti-communist special warfare training academy. So he is a joint graduate of both the CIA uh, fish farm training center and the anti-communist special warfare training academy under Otto Scorzani. Okay, and uh, and uh, and this guy this guy Theodore Shackley went on. Uh, to become the CIA station chief in uh, in Miami uh, in 1960 uh, 1961 in the June of 1961, uh, and he later on became the CIA station chief in Laos, and then the CIA station chief in Saigon. He was the creator of the Phoenix program that was a uh, an assassination program that was funded with opium money in Southeast Asia, that uh, that murdered, by by the admission of Dick Helms, the head of the Central Intelligence Agency, in his sworn testimony in front of Congress, at least twenty thousand non-combatant civilians, and most people put it closer to two hundred thousand people. But Theodore Shackley, uh, he ended up. Uh, ordering the assassination of Prince Sionuk of Indonesia when he was the CIA station chief in Saigon. Uh, and he, anyway, it was a long and involved story, but the bottom line is, is that one of, the, one of the young CIA operatives in South Vietnam, uh, his mistress, turned out to be also the mistress of a high-level uh, uh, Viet Cong general. And so Theodore Shackley decided that he had to be murdered. He had to be, he had to be liquidated because he might be a potential leak of the fact that, that Shackley was getting ready to assassinate Sihanouk. And so he ordered the assassination of this young fellow, and Shackley personally ordered his best friend who was a CIA operative, an American CIA operative, to be the guy to pull the trigger on him so that he would not you know, turn them all in over this. And so the, the, the squad of five guys, they were all special forces under the leadership of a guy named Colonel Rowe, R-E-A-U-X, uh, Colonel Rowe and these five guys went out and kidnapped the guy, put him in a boat and brought him out in the middle of a lake, and his best friend put, three slugs in the back of his head, and they tied rocks to him with chains and sunk him in the lake. Uh, And weeks went by, and this young fellow started feeling terrible about what he had done, uh, and he finally (coughs) uh, turned himself in to General Creighton Abrams, who was the commanding general of the forces in Vietnam at the time. And Creighton Abrams went ballistic uh, (coughs) over this, and he ordered their arrest. Uh, and Colonel Rowe and all five of these guys were arrested and they were going to be court-martialed. Uh, and the, uh, all of a sudden, Richard Nixon, who was president when all this happened much later, reached out to uh, <clears throat> Peter Rodino, who was the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. And, uh, and Peter Rodino uh, gave the assignment to his uh, chief uh, counsel for the House Judiciary Committee. Um, a fellow of the name of, uh, what was the guy's name? Uh, uh, I'll think of it in a second. Anyway, but this, this, this fellow this fellow uh, was given the, the assignment to uh, get all five of the congressmen from the home districts of these guys that had been arrested and get them pardoned so that they would not be prosecuted for having done this. Jerry Ziefman, his name is. Z-I-E-F-M-A-N, Jerry Ziefman. Who was uh, chief counsel for the for the House Judiciary Committee at the time? He went ahead and did this. Got a hold of the five congressmen, put them together to lobby on this thing. Got them all pardoned. <clears throat> and when he went, they called him and wanted him to come and party with him over the fact that they'd been pardoned. And they all got drunk together. And they all started telling him the story about what they had done and killing this young guy. Uh, and because, and they told him all about the fact that they were being ordered by uh, Shackley to kill uh, Prince Sihanouk. And this guy, Jerry Ziefman, calls me on the phone at my office at the Jesuit headquarters in Washington and wants to, come, wants to see me right away. And so he, he sets up a meeting in this restaurant in, uh, in Washington, and I got Sarah, our executive director at the Christic Institute <laughs> at the time, and we both go over to see this guy at this restaurant. And he's all nervous, and we sit down, <laughs> sit down in the restaurant, and he starts to tell me about what had happened and what he'd been assigned to do. And he said to us this extraordinary thing. He said, uh, he said, you know, when I was chosen to be the chief counsel for the House Judiciary Committee of the United States Congress, he said, I felt like I was so proud, I felt that I'd been hired to play the grand uh, organ in the cathedral. He said... But it turns out, I discovered that I was actually being brought on to play honky-tonk piano in a whorehouse. <laughs> Except he said, I, at least I thought I knew what was going on upstairs, but people weren't getting fucked, they were getting murdered. That's exactly what he said to us. And he told us the details of, of this thing. Why so, so, you so, so <laughs> Because we were the best people in town to tell, I guess because uh, he probably thought we might do something about it. And what happened is some, some time later, uh, after the, because we'd already filed the, the case, it turns out I, com- I come into my office uh, on this morning, I think it was June, probably June 2nd or so of, uh, of 1986, uh, and I come into the office and my secretary, Patty Austin, uh, who'd been my secretary since I was the chief trial attorney for ACLU uh, out in the Rocky Mountain region that she says Danny There's this older gentleman waiting for you uh, To talk to you and I said who is he and she said I don't know he didn't give me his name and I said well where is he he said oh he's up in your office waiting for you So I go upstairs and I walk in here's this guy looked like maybe 70 Years old or so seemed older at the time that it does now, but uh, he, he, he's sitting there, and he's got he's got this uh, these khaki pants on with those big you know pockets in them, those kind of uh, mufty outfit, and this uh, this kind of fishing vest with like 20 pockets in it, and in uh, this uh, 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 hemp uh, knapsack or, or a little bag or like a, a briefcase like he's got on his side, and he's sitting there, and so I walk in and I walk over and I stick my hand and I say hi, I'm Danny Sheehan. And he said, yes, yes, I know, hello, hello. And he didn't tell me what his name was. And so uh, I said, okay, I said, uh, sit down, sit down. And I come over and I get down behind my desk and I say to him, what, what can I do? He said, look, he said, uh, I've got a copy of the complaint here that you filed uh, down in Miami uh, in this Iran-Contra case. And uh, I was a little bit taken aback because they'd been put under seal by, uh, I'll talk about that later when we get to the Iran-Contra case, but it had been put under seal by uh, Judge James Lawrence King, who it turns out was an appointee of Richard Nixon at the recommendation of B.B. Rabozo, who's a major mafia figure down in Miami. Uh, and it turns out that the, the judge had been on the board of directors of Meyer Lansky's National Bank of Miami, who's the major mafia treasurer. Uh, and so he seals the, the complaint and threatens to put me in federal prison for six months if I tell anybody that the, the complaint even exists, right? And so, uh, so I'm, I'm in the office, and this fellow takes the complaint out of his little bag and shows it. He says, here, I've got a copy of your complaint here. And he said, uh, he said now, you don't know who I am. I said, no, I, I noticed that, since you hadn't told me. Uh, and he said, but, he said, but look, if, if you would answer a few questions for me, you don't have to, but if you do, I might be able to help you out here. And he said, now, can you tell me who among the 26 defendants that you've named here Uh, in this Iran-Contra case against this enterprise of uh, Oliver North. Who do you think is the most important of all of these defendants? And I said, oh, that's easy, it's uh, Theodore Shackley. And he said, really, really, he said, why why do you say that? I said, well, uh, a lot of people would think it's because Theodore Shackley was the ADDO, the Associate Deputy Director for Operations, i.e., the Head of Covert Operations of the CIA, under George H.W. Bush. When Bush was the head of the Central Intelligence Agency from 1975 to 1977, uh, under uh, under Ford, under Gerald Ford, when Ford came in for that period of time after Richard Nixon had gotten thrown out, impeached basically, uh, and uh, and so I said, in Theodore Shackley, uh, as the head of covert operations, it, one of his assistants uh, was uh, Donald K. Uh, Donald, uh, what's his name? Donald. What was his name? The guy that was the, the National Security Advisor for Bush. The, Donald C. Gregg, that's it. Uh, Donald P. Gregg, he said I said he was the, uh, Greg, was the case officer for Donald P. Gregg, and Donald P. Gregg was the case officer for Felix Rodriguez, who's running the Ilopongo airlift operations to the Contras in complete violation of the Boland Amendment passed by Congress uh, so it's impeachable offenses, and so that uh, you would think, some people think, that's why I would have named him. Uh, it, and, uh, and, and he looked at me and he said, but that's not the main reason? And I said, no, no. Uh, and he said, well, what is the main reason? I said, because he was the Miami station chief on November 22nd of 1963. Now, see, you could say that to most boomers, and they'd know immediately what that meant. Okay, but that's the day that President Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas. And so he got up and uh, he said to me, he said there aren't five people in the world that would have answered that question that way. He said, and he stuck his hand out to me and he said, my name is Dick Billings, I was the chief of staff of the House Select Committee on Assassinations that reinvestigated the Kennedy assassination. I think you and I can help each other out here. And he said, look, it, there's a guy who wants to talk with you. Would you be willing to meet with somebody that I put you in touch with? And I said, I would, yes. And he said, uh, how about tomorrow? And I said, yes. He said, noontime? And I said, yes. And he said, well, where would you like to meet? Uh, you pick the place so that you'll be comfortable there. And I was, I was feeling like uh, Michael Corleone, uh, you know, in the Godfather. Here, pick, pick a place where you'll feel safe. And so I was trying to think of a place that had one of those pull chain toilets. So, 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 he, so I say, okay, uh, let's, let's do the Dubliner Cafe down at the bottom of Capitol Hill tomorrow at noon. He said, good, well, let's do it. So I show up the next day at noontime. I show up, and there's Dick Billings out in front of the Dubliner Cafe. And I walk up and shake his hand. We walk in, and here's this guy, another guy maybe 70 years old or so, sitting all by himself in the Dubliner Cafe. And we walk in and, uh, and uh, Dick Billings walks me over, and he said, uh, oh, Dan Sheehan, Joe Smith. Joe Smith, Dan Sheehan. I shook his hand, I said, yeah, great. And he said, no, 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 he says, I get that a lot. He said, uh, my name is Joseph Burkholder Smith. He said, I was the deputy CIA station chief in Mexico City uh, back in 1973 uh, when Theodore Shackley got pulled out of Southeast Asia and Vietnam, and assigned to be the head of Western Hemisphere operations. And I said, Oh, yes, yes, I, I remember. And he said, uh, You know, he said that he'd been pulled out of Southeast Asia uh, for reasons that, you know, you, you probably wouldn't need to know about and probably don't know what that was all about. And I said, Sure, I do. And he said, Well, you don't, he said, but, uh, and I said, Sure, I do. And I said, It was the Colonel Roe thing. And then I went into detail about exactly what it was. You know, And he was just stunned, uh, but I could tell that because I knew all about that, he decided then he was gonna tell me something even more than he was planning to tell me. And so then he says, look, let me tell you something. He said, when Theodore Shackley was pulled out of Southeast Asia and made the head of Western Hemisphere Operations, he ordered the removal of all of the CIA station chiefs in all the stations in all the Western Hemisphere. And replaced them with his own hand-picked men. Uh, he said that uh, he did that because a fellow a CIA fellow by the name of Phil Agee was writing a book at the time, which ended up being called Inside the Company. And uh, that people were afraid that he may have come into possession of the names of the CIA station chiefs in the Western Hemisphere, and that he would reveal them in the book. And so that uh, he used that as the excuse, basically, to replace all of the station chiefs and he pulled the station chief out, uh, who was the station chief there, I think it was Scott, the guy's name was, and replaced him with a fellow by the name of Thomas Polgar. And uh, Tom Polgar came into my office, he said shortly after that, and introduced himself, and he said, Joe, I don't know if I'm gonna be able to leave you on here as my deputy, uh, but there's gonna be somebody gonna come into the office tomorrow about 10 o'clock in the morning, you'll recognize who he is. Uh, and he's going to ask you some questions. And depending upon how you answer those questions, that'll determine whether or not I'm going to leave you on here as my deputy. He may even want to take you somewhere and introduce you to some other people who may have some questions. And depending on how you answer those questions, that'll determine whether you're going to be left on. So the next day, he said, about 10 o'clock in the morning, uh, into his office walks Nasser Haro. Nasser Haro, here's Mexico City, and Nasser Haro is the head of the DFS. Uh, which is like the combined FBI-CIA of Mexico. He walks into his office and said, hello, Joe. He said, I assumed that uh, Polgar told you I was coming. And Joe said, uh, well, "You know, I told him I didn't know who it was, but uh, he said I'd recognize you, and I do. Uh, and, so, and, Pol- and so Polgar says, look, there's some people that want to talk with you. Uh, would you mind coming uh, with me and uh, talking to them? So he says, no, I'll go with you, so they leave and they go down uh, out of the building, and they get in one of these little uh, little uh, smoke windowed uh, <laughs> sedans and they drive away and they bring them to Mexico City and they go all around the security people and they get into a, a Learjet and they fly away. And they fly and fly and fly and they end up landing in Buenos Aires in Argentina. And they get out uh, and they go all around the security and they get in a helicopter and they fly away, and they fly all the way up to the northwestern corner of Argentina, where it comes together with about four other countries up there. And they land on this, uh, what looks like a soccer field, he said, and uh, they land in the helicopter, and he gets out of the helicopter and follows Nasser Haro across this soccer field and up this embankment, and he said, I looked over the embankment, and I thought I was in Bavaria, he said. And he he said I followed him down into the little town, and we go to this like Bavarian inn, and we walk in, and here are these six guys sitting at this great big uh, oak table, uh, and they're sitting there, uh, and it's in front of this big stone fireplace, and up on the mantle of the fireplace, is a swastika flag. Okay, and this this now this is uh, this would have been uh, 1973, and. Uh, and he said, I was kind of stunned and I saw this thing and the fellow in the middle of the table gestured for me to come and sit down at the only chair that was on the other side of the table. So I sit down and the guy says to me, he said, Joe, he said, uh, uh, we got some questions for you. And, you. know, depending on how you answer these questions, that's going to determine whether you stay on as the deputy station chief in the, for the agency. He said, now look, we have spent a lot of time and energy organizing a major cocaine cartel here in South America and he said that we're shipping the cocaine around the Western Hemisphere here, and including the United States, and a portion of those profits are gonna be used to help finance our war without boundaries against your enemies and ours. And we wanted to make sure that if you're gonna be left on as a deputy station chief in Mexico City, that you aren't gonna do anything to interfere with that. And so here we are sitting in the Dubliner Cafe, you know, like June 2nd of 1986. And uh, Joe, Joseph Smith says to me, and I, and I swear to God, Dan, he said, I don't know anything that I'd ever done in my life that would have led them to believe that I would have gone along with that. And I said, uh, how about being the deputy CIA station chief in Mexico City for a start? I said, and he got kind of shocked. And he turns to Dick Billings and he said, hey, I thought this guy was going to cooperate with us. And Billings says, "Hey, look! I just met the guy." He said, and so he gets up from the table and he walks. He walks all. all he gets up and walks all the way around the table like this to me, and he comes over to me and he st- he sticks his hand out to me like this, and he said, "I just wanted to make sure if you're going to do a case against these folks, that you know who you're really dealing with." That's what he said to me. Okay, so I want you to know who it is. That we're really dealing with okay these are the people that could determine who the deputy CIA station chief was going to be for the United States CIA and these people are overt out and out fascists okay And just to close this story it turns out during the Iran Contra case once we finally broke the story and told everybody that we'd filed this case and who they were etc when the United States Congress decided they were going to have to put together a special committee to investigate Iran-Contra, the United States Senate selected as their chief investigator, Tom Polgar. Okay. So the bottom line is that I'm telling you here is that what these men did, this cabal of people uh, that, were, that had located themselves in these high echelons the State Department, and OSS, and the Defense Department, et cetera, at the end of World War II, that they set up a major base of operations in South America, in Argentina, in Brazil, in Uruguay, in Paraguay. And from there, those, the Nazis that had actually fled from Europe, under changed names, became major military advisors to those fascist governments all throughout Central America. And the United States Central Intelligence Agency maintained direct support for those people and for those fascist governments that were in charge, all under the pretense of being anti-communist. And so they, they crushed any student groups, faculty groups, labor unions, women's groups, church groups, uh, lawyers' groups, anybody who organized to try to establish democratic principles in their country because they maintained that allowing a democracy to flourish in their country left open the possibility that socialists would be elected, and they weren't going to tolerate that. And this went on all the way into the administrations of President John Kennedy. That they had an entire program. John Kennedy, when he came into office, we'll get to this a little later in the course, but John Kennedy told these people, look, you guys are going to have to at least have the appearance of elections down here. You know, you got these kind of total authoritarian military dictatorship governments, you know, and it's, it's hard for us here in the United States to support you. You know, that you've got to have at least the appearance of some elections. And so what they asked, the Kennedy administration was, look at, well, we want your central intelligence agency to identify to us who the organizations are that would be a threat against us if we held public elections. And then we can pass these criminal syndicalism acts and we can round them up if any three or more of them are caught meeting together. And then we can suppress them, and then we can hold elections after that. Uh, and so that this this is the the kind of activity that these people were engaged in, in the political assassination program that they were running, that was referenced by these friends uh, of Nasser Haro, uh, was called Operation Condor. Uh, and, uh, and its, base, its base of operations was there in Mexico City inside the security department of an oil, the Mexican oil company that was called Pemex. And the, uh, the president of Pemex was Jorge Diaz Serrano, who had been a former partner with George H.W. Bush. In the Zapata Oil Corporation in Permingo, that uh, these and and George H. W. Bush, to remind you, was in fact the the grandson of George Herbert Walker, who was the CEO of Brown Brothers Harriman, the lawyer for whom was Allen Dulles, who was made the head of the Central Intelligence Agency, after the Central Intelligence Agency was created. Pursuant to these memos uh, written by guys like uh, Robert Lovett who is one of the three uh, trustees of the Anderson Trust of this 1.2 trillion dollars in treasure that was being used to finance the election of fascists in the position of mayors and in uh, town council people and stuff all through Europe at the at the end of the war. Uh, And and now, also, in addition to to these things, they set up out of Southeast Asia, at the end of World War II, out of the Golden Triangle, a major heroin smuggling operation. Uh, Opium coming out of the Golden Triangle, smuggled out with the direct assistance of Central Intelligence Agency operatives, and brought to the Corsican Mafia in Corsica, uh, pursuant to the third agreement that was struck with Lucky Luciano back in 1943, when he was released from prison at Great Meadows Prison in New York by Thomas Dewey, you know, in those in those uh, discussions that were undertaken by Murray Gerfine for him, that they not not only did he agree to to go back to Sicily and provide Mafia scouts for the landing troops of the U.S. and allies, and also to infiltrate the labor unions, the Teamsters Union and, the, and the, the Longshoremen Union. Thirdly, they agreed that they would facilitate the opium trafficking out of Southeast Asia, and they would transform the opium into heroin through the Corsican Mafia, and then smuggle it into Cuba and uh, the fellow who was the Don of the Mafia in Cuba, Santos Traficante, was a business partner with Batista, who was the fascist head of the the authoritarian government in Cuba, and the two of them were partners with the man by the name of Paul Halliwell, and Paul Halliwell was the head of, I mentioned to you earlier, the head of the Sea Supply Corporation, the Southeast Asian Supply Corporation, and the Southeast Asian Supply Corporation would handle the importation of the heroin into into Cuba, facilitated with Santos Traficante, and Traficante's people would distribute the heroin into the United States, and a portion of the profits would be given to Paul Helliwell at the Sea Supply Corporation, and he would then turn them over to the International Business Corporation, The International Business Corporation was created by William D. Pauly, the guy who was the author of the Doolittle Report. In in, in William D. Pauly, uh, uh, this International Business Corporation was the front that would then use these funds to purchase military equipment and explosives and, and transport them uh, through these, the, the Flying Tigers. Uh, they had been founded by William Pauly along with, with, uh, with uh, 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 what's her head? Uh, no, no, it was Chenault, Chenault was one of them. But uh, what's his head, Life Magazine, Henry Luce and Claire Booth Luce. Henry Luce, Claire Booth Luce, uh, Chenault, and William Pauly were the ones that ran this uh, Flying Tigers operation, uh, and in fact, they're the ones that would transport the military equipment and explosives that had been purchased by the International Business Corporation, that was founded by William Pauly. Okay, so that what, what you see is this is this is a fairly small community of people that we're talking about here. Uh, and know, I get I get criticized by. Uh, by kind of hardcore secular left organizations uh, periodically like the Communist Workers Party and others uh, who are saying that oh you know uh, this is really the the entire capitalist class you know and uh, and uh, all of the all of the people in the newspapers and the liberals are just running lapdogs of these uh, these capitalist uh, fascists and you know the the revolution will not be won until the last liberal is hung on the intestines of the last uh, ra- last fascist. You know, that, that kind of, so I, I'm not, I don't wanna cast dispersions on those who criticize me, but, uh, but the, those that I've been, I've been criticized before by suggesting that this group of people that I'm talking about here have such power and sway over the policies of the United States uh, because they say it's really the entire capitalist class. Uh, and what I'm, what I'm suggesting to you here is that, while it is true that there is an entire class of people who consider themselves to be the aristocracy, uh, that the fact of the matter is that those people are simple reactionaries for the most part, and these people that we're talking about are absolute budding authoritarians that they actually believe that they should be in charge, and in fact, they basically are. That They're the ones who insist upon knowing how to get into positions to push the buttons to make things happen. And you know, when you have a tight-knit group like this, uh, where, where they're all working together, they all know each other, they all uh, belong to the same clubs, they all you know, went to the same schools, they, they all marry each other's sisters and brothers, you know, I mean that this is this is the the kind of group that we're talking about. And the fact is is that when Eisenhower came into office in 1952, and, and Alan Dulles was made the director of the Central Intelligence Agency, uh, one of the one of the things that was recommended in the uh, in the Doolittle report was that they had to increase the Internal counterintelligence operations of the CIA to prevent them from becoming infiltrated. And Alan Dulles selected to head up the counterintelligence division of the CIA a fellow by the name of James Jesus Angleton. And Angleton later on told Joe Trento, uh, uh, a guy who, who has the same publisher that I do, from the books that, that, that I publish. Uh, which is uh, the Counterpoint Press up in Berkeley. Joe Trento wrote this book called Prelude to Terror where he talks about some of this historical background. And when Joe was interviewing James Jesus Angleton on his deathbed, James Jesus Angleton said that uh, Alan Dulles brought me on as the head of counterintelligence inside the Central Intelligence Agency on one condition that he would hire me, and that is is that I never I agree never to polygraph either Dulles or any of the 60 men that he represented who funded the German government during World War II. Okay. So the so the the the, the truth of the matter is that there is in fact a an entire capitalist class uh, in the United States in the Western culture. Uh, uh, but the fact of the matter is that the evidence based upon my over 45 years of investigations and litigations uh, in dealing with these people is that there is in fact this cadre uh, of men, uh, with, with the exception of a few uh, women, uh, such as Claire Booth Luce and a few others that occur, uh, that the, the, the fact of the matter is these people are behind the scenes controlling the policies of the United States, Uh, and they do so from strategic positions, and they're appointed over and over again by different administrations, and they set up this heroin trafficking operation out of Southeast Asia, right at the end of the Cold War, or excuse me, at the end of World War II, and they have been smuggling hundreds and hundreds of tons of heroin into Cuba, and into the United States. And that's why when Fidel Castro overthrew Batista on January 1st of 1959, that the American Central Intelligence Agency went absolutely apeshit over this. That they, in fact, had their their heroin supply cut off that was one of the sources of funding of their covert operations. Because they didn't want the United States Congress to know about their covert operations. They had the $1.2 trillion that they had in the Anderson Trust that was in the banks in Switzerland that they were using to issue these gold certificates to help uh, the fascists around the world. Uh, And they had the money that had been embezzled from uh, the Vatican Bank uh, that was sent down to Argentina through Perón. But they, they wanted to open up and have their own additional supply of funds coming in through the heroin trafficking coming in from Southeast Asia. And as I mentioned, they've they've got a guy, a full-time paid employee uh, of the Central Intelligence Agency, Paul Haliwell, sitting there in Havana in the Sea Supply Corporation handling the heroin coming into into Cuba and, and handing it over to the to the mafia with Santos Trafficanti, you know, who was I mentioned, one of our clients. That, that when I was in F. Lee Bailey's office, Santos Traficanti was one of our clients. He's the guy that told us about these things, okay? Uh, and so that, so that uh, now in addition to this, when Eisenhower was, was president, well when Truman, when Truman was still president, uh, when the uh, Korean War broke out, uh, broke out, <laughs> anyway, the, when, when the Western allies, decided that they were going to set up a puppet regime uh, below the 38th parallel. Uh, and Russia had already agreed to turn over uh, custody and control of Northern Korea to the Chinese uh, in settlement of their, of, their, uh, of the, end, the end of World War II. The bottom line is, is that Douglas MacArthur, who had been the head of the Pacific Command, uh, and who was, as you remember, I said that, that uh, Edward, Edward Lansdale, when he discovered this $1.2 trillion in treasure, flew all the way over to Singapore, and met with, uh, met with uh, MacArthur, and told him all about this. And so MacArthur, in, in 1952, was or 51 still, uh, was the commander of all of the Allied forces in South Korea during the Korean War, And he decided he wanted to use, drop an atomic bomb uh, on the North Koreans uh, and the Chinese to stop them from being able to uh, invade uh, South Korea. And uh, and Truman wouldn't agree to do that. And uh, so, so MacArthur started criticizing him publicly. And MacArthur was the guy that a lot of these fascists wanted to become president. And what happened is Truman didn't fire him, the big famous thing about him firing MacArthur, he didn't fire him, he reassigned him from being the commander of Allied Forces in, in Korea and, uh, and assigned him to some Pudunk position and uh, in MacArthur uh, resigned, or retired. And what happened is he was immediately flown to Dallas, Texas by H.L. Uh, Hunt, in William D. Pauley uh, and they they jointly financed flying him to Dallas, and they held a big, huge ticker tape parade for him there. and And uh, MacArthur brought with him his G2, his head of intelligence uh, from his Korean position, uh, who was Charles Willoughby. And as you remember, Charles Willoughby is the guy that went with. Uh, Edward Lansdale on MacArthur's plane all the way to meet with Truman and tell him about this secret trove of money that they had. Uh, and so when, when MacArthur came to Dallas and had this big ticker tape parade, Willoughby came with him. And Willoughby, along with William D. Pauley, set up a thing called the Foreign Intelligence Digest. And what this was, was a purely private publication. It was like a newsletter, a monthly newsletter uh, that was compiled uh, under the supervision of H.L. Uh, Hunt in Pauley, in and, and, uh, Willoughby. And what they did is they, they retained young men from the Korean War and World War II, uh, in the post-Korean War period, they recruited them to be spies, to infiltrate uh, all organizations in the country that might be subversive. And so, the, and the Foreign Intelligence Digest would compile the reports of these people in their field investigations, and they would make them available to companies like the World Business Corporation uh, and, the, and, the, and the International Business Corporation. Two different groups, the International Business Corporation being Pauli's organization that was handling the money from the Sea Supply Corporation to buy the military equipment for the Nationalist Chinese, who now were not opposing Japan. They were opposing uh, Mao Zedong. And so they were providing military equipment to Chiang Kai-shek and the Nationalist Chinese that basically ended up being pushed off into Taiwan, and they're the ones that now govern Taiwan. Uh, as as distinct from China. Uh, But there was this other group called the World Business Corporation, and the legal counsel for the World Business Corporation was Wild Bill Donovan, who was the head of the OSS. Okay, so these, these guys that were all in the OSS come out and they, because they're lawyers, uh, and their businessmen and financiers, they set up these companies with their lawyers, and they use them as these front organizations, uh, pursuant to which they conduct these now domestic surveillance operations, uh, and they they feed a major frenzy of anti-communism uh, now, uh, and they they uh, they have their their people end up, uh, for example, a fellow named Jackson. Uh, ends up chairing a commission under Truman and they recommend uh, mounting a major psychological operation in propaganda campaign inside the United States to get all of our people to do exactly what it was that they recommended in the Doolittle Report, which was that whole idea that uh, when, when they said that uh, they said, it may become necessary that the American people be made acquainted with and come to understand and support this fundamentally repugnant philosophy of having to abandon hitherto accepted norms of human conduct. And so that this, this whole operation uh, under the Jackson Commission was, uh, was initiated to, to basically uh, do exactly that. And so that what you saw happen in the United States is after World War II, there was this drumbeat that was begun uh, on the part of Time Magazine, Life Magazine, uh, Radio Free Europe, uh, one type of major publication after another, uh, to basically instill a, a, a fear of communism, even though, even though uh, Russia lost 20 million people. Killed during World War II. I mean, they were a complete shambles. They were tearing up the rail lines that went from the Soviet Union into Europe and bringing all that that steel and iron back into Russia because they didn't have anything. And, And here is Reinhard Galen out of Berlin sending reports in that the Soviet Union is getting ready to invade and occupy Europe and this, so they're putting out this entire propaganda to the people of the United States, uh, and the people then are starting to be afraid, and, the, and they start this major witch hunt that goes on inside the United States that uh, you've probably just heard about, and again, it's another thing probably to you is, is hard to distinguish even from the Civil War, but it was this McCarthy period. There was this McCarthy period where uh, Joseph McCarthy, a uh, United States senator, you know, led this crusade going on inside the United States Congress to hunt down uh, anybody who, not limited to people that were sympathetic to the Soviet Union, not even limited to people that were communists, but anybody who was a socialist or a progressive to the point where, as I mentioned, they read more than two books a year. You know, that these people were immediately suspect by this fascist cabal And what they wanted to do is they wanted to chill everybody in the country to keep them from doing anything that was subversive to the major mission that these people had to basically establish full spectrum dominance over the planet. And they knew that the Soviet Union was the major antipode uh, or antipodal force to them because they too, just like the capitalists, were in fact dialecticians. That they were they were adherents to the second paradigm worldview, that believed that everything was good guys and bad guys, uh, you know, and uh, A versus B, and, and that was that's the basic dynamic by means of which history takes place, uh, and so that, that's that's the uh, the era that we that we uh, open onto now at the end of World War II, and so that we have this whole period that goes on from 1945 in the waning months of the war all the way through 46 in the the memos coming in about wanting to create the Central Intelligence Agency, 1947, the creation of the Central Intelligence Agency, uh, the fostering and promoting of anti-communism, the 1948, the Truman Doctrine gets announced, Uh, and then the the first head of the Central Intelligence Agency, the first civilian is Allen Dulles, who is the lawyer for Brown Brothers Harriman, and so that we have this entire era that opens on to the McCarthy era here in the United States, and they set up special uh, committees inside the House and Senate, uh, hunting down people that they believe are subversives. And so that they, they hounded professors from, uh, from their chairs at universities, they uh, hounded the people in Hollywood, uh, who were progressives in any way uh, to keep them from being involved in writing scripts that might be subversive. Uh, they, they hounded uh, authors uh, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, newspaper reporters uh, everywhere. They, and, and there, there were uh, literally thousands of people whose lives were totally destroyed by these people uh, to try to chill them. And I can tell you, that, that fear still resides, you know, in universities, inside law firms, uh, inside publishing houses, uh, inside churches, uh, still all around the United States and in Western culture, there is this, this irrational fear of being characterized as a communist or as a fellow traveler uh, of communists, because of the McCarthy era. That's right the, all these loyalty oaths that, that they, they probably make you sign one in order to get a scholarship, uh, anymore or to get a loan, uh, to to go to college, uh, you know. So that that that's that's the what I, what I want to leave us with here. I want to talk about this with you for for uh, for uh, at least fifteen or twenty minutes uh, because when we go over to Porter, we're going to we're going to discuss uh, this question that was raised and uh, and I. I th- think I think that the, the question was, was actually posed by, uh, I don't know, was it uh, Kimberly or, or who was it that anyway, some, but somebody asked me in the last discussion session, you know, this, this thing came up that I know that Nemo asked the question about, uh, about Franklin Roosevelt uh, and Roosevelt instigating the attack on Pearl Harbor. Uh, as a means of getting the United States to agree to go into the war against Germany. And the question arose as to whether or not an, an act like that was, was palatable. Was it, was it, could it conceivably be perceived as having been a good thing to have done? You know, does it, is, it, is it justified to do something like that? Because uh, uh, we want to talk about that later in uh, our, our longer discussion. Uh, and and you know, those of you who have seen uh, the movie that, uh, that I asked you to see, as an assignment, it wasn't just a vague request, uh, but we'll talk, we'll talk about it over there, but this, this era that I've talked to you about now, about this, this period at the end of the war, in the closing months of World War II, and the, the immediate aftermath of creating the Central Intelligence Agency, et cetera, you know, what, what uh, are your thoughts about that, now, did, did, did you, t- tell me, somebody about it, how much of this did you know ahead of time? Or, or what did you heard about this period of stuff? You know, how do, how do you guys in the millennial generation perceive that period uh, prior to your being born? Don't all leap at the same time. I'll, uh, I'll, take, I'll take hands. Uh, for anyone who wants to talk about this, like the McCarthy period? yeah, this this whole period from the end of World War II to, to the McCarthy to the McCarthy period. What? How much of, how much about this do you guys know? Did, no, did they, did they talk to you about that in high school or is it just here at college? Okay, so, the, so they touched on the McCarthy, yes? Um, I think in my high school it was very like, McCarthy was a crazy guy and like, he's just like one. It was like made to seem like one. Very a nutcase, crazy. an individual yeah. nutcase. Nothing that would in other Yeah, sort of like how Hitler is portrayed, that he was a, he was a, a good speaker and talked everybody in Germany uh, into into doing that stuff
1: And communists and trying to like, like, like you know, sway James Bond to communism or something. I don't know. But there's still like recent movies, none that I know the names of, but yeah. there's still like recent films being, you know, made where you still have this like antagonistic kind of feeling. And, and a lot of like the Russian people I know are like, we don't care. Like, why do you guys think we're the bad guys still? And I thought it was just kind of some weird, like, okay, people just don't know how to get over themselves and, and, you know, just a lot of old people that don't know how to, like, move from the past, but it seems more that it's still trying to create that animosity and,
0: and create that tension. Stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What else? What, what are some other thoughts? That uh, Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And we we kind of learned that, you know, the United States sort of had to rise to the challenge of stopping the threat
0: of communism. Mm-hmm. So that's what we learned. Yeah. Where'd you go to high school? I went to high school at Paula in El Cajon, El Cajon. yeah, yeah. yeah. El Cajon. Yeah. yeah. That's tough territory down there. Not as bad as it used to be. That that, that whole territory down there used to be really hardcore right wing. But, uh, yes, know.
1: about MLK that we don't hear about like the controversy we created and things like that, where like World War II is kind of framed as the only just war, it's the only one that everybody agrees was totally right and totally fine and everything worked out well, so that's
0: like kind of the narrative around this period. Yeah, and there, there would never be even the slightest hint uh, of the fact that, that there were major people in positions of very uh, influential businesses and investment houses and stuff like this that were f- supporting them and uh, actually financing them uh, and actually created them uh, intentionally to try to establish this bulwark against Bolshevism in Europe. There's no connection at all. Uh, that it was, same, it was in my high school the same way. And uh, actually Rudolf Steiner, uh, who's a very interesting fellow that you might want to find out about, uh, but Rudolf Steiner uh, uh, said that, you know, that. If, in fact, you have state-supported schools, uh, it's inevitable that the state uh, is going to teach you just exactly what the people who run the state want you to think. And so that you're going to have this kind of attitude about the Russians, uh, and it's gonna stick with you. I I remember that, there's a a famous uh, story that the uh, uh, Father Arthur Brown told us this one time. He said that when, when the Catholic Church changed the rule about not eating meat on Friday, that you know for a long time it was a mortal sin to eat meat on Friday. Uh, and then they changed it uh, under, uh, I think it was Paul VI. And they changed it. And in order to get people to really understand it, they, had, they were distributing this picture to all the churches with the Pope sitting there, eating a, a steak, pointing at the calendar that said Friday <laughs> on it. And uh, Arthur Brown said that, that uh, after the, after the Mass, where he showed him the picture and tried to get them to understand this, this little lady came up to him. She said, well, the Pope may go to hell, but I'm not going to. <laughs> you know? And so the, the, the reality is, is that, that the people who were brainwashed basically for all this time to believe that the Soviet Union was going to be invading us you know, right from the very end of World War II, uh, actually right from 1917 uh, with sending over the U.S. military expeditionary force into Russia, that, that the regular people who don't really ever understand why it is that they're supposed to believe something, even though they know they're supposed to, it's much harder to get the, these people to undo it because they've never known why they were supposed to be doing it to begin with. They just do it because you're supposed to. Uh, and so that's that's a challenge. And that's why those of us who get the opportunity to get into college and get a chance to study about this is so important. And that's why that's why I want you to be able to to learn how to go after, in research, finding out about these kind of things. Because actually you'll find papers around about this stuff. Uh, I happen to have found out about it through direct investigations. You know, uh, at, at the Jesuit headquarters, and when I was at F. Lee Bailey's office in, in Santos-Traffic County told us about all this. Uh, when I was at the Cahill Firm and we had the Pentagon Papers and I got to read all 47 volumes of the classified Pentagon papers and found out all about the heroin trafficking and everything that was going on, you know. But to this day, uh, I mean, except for the fact that there's little bits in movies, you know, that you'll you'll see movies where they talk about the CIA being rotten, dirty scumbags and you know, and murderers and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but it's it's sort of like entertainment. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, you get guys like Jack Ryan. You know, in uh, in the Clear and Present Danger, and uh, uh, all of those those Tom Clancy movies, uh, where the CIA ends up being a hero, and you see this recent resurgence of of pro-CIA stuff going on all the time. You got all these young women now being CIA recruits that are doing all these champion things, like in Homeland and uh, Covert Affairs, and and uh, they've got they've got all of the major protagonists being CIA people. And, and you get this picture of the CIA being this very sophisticated thing. And, uh, and that's why you've got to be careful. Uh, and you really need to do, do your reading uh, and work here in this course. You've got this great opportunity here to find out about a lot of this stuff. And you, know, you aren't going to get much more chances to do this as undergraduates. And so what I'm hoping to do is to be able to get you to be inspired to look into some of these things. So whatever it is that you wanna do in life, whether you wanna be lawyers or whether you wanna teach or whether you, whatever it is you wanna do, that you go on into graduate school uh, and you learn about these things. Uh, and because, the, because being in the know First thing you're going to have to do is you're going to have to avoid the temptation when someone reaches out to you and says, Oh, I can tell now that you know what's really going on. You know, and so you can come on in to the club, you know, and be part of this. Because uh, that's what will happen. As soon as they know that you know, they figure you're sophisticated enough to know the rest of it. And then they assume that you'll get on board this thing. And, and they're, they're, at the present time, there are not many alternatives to it because there there is no major progressive political party you know there even the university here is far less progressive than it used to be you know there are I mean they have like Reed College I guess in uh, Antioch uh, there there are a few there are a few very progressive colleges around uh, you know but the minute that you know you give your resume to somebody and they see that you went to Reed College you know unless they're recruiting socialists they you know they don't they don't uh, jump up and down and bring you on board inside the, the headquarters of the corporation. So that I, I just want you I just want you to take this opportunity that we've got here together to to delve into this stuff and right do some creative uh, learning about this because as I say that you it'll give you an opportunity to have issues to look at at graduate school, uh, but at least you'll take it on with you out into life where you'll know about this. And, and uh, in closing on this, we have to go over and have our other discussion, but that most importantly, I think it's gonna be very important for us all you know, in the near future with the onset of the global climate change of you trying to really figure out you know, how dramatic the steps are that you're going to be willing to take in order to stave off the worst consequences of this global climate change and how are you going to try to combat the efforts to roll into place a, a national security state here in our country to try to, uh, so that the, the elite will try to protect themselves and their property when the consequences of global climate change start to descend upon us all. You know, So there's a, a real practicum uh, that, you, that we have to work with here, okay? So so let's let's go on over next door. Uh, yes, we got a, a boomer question. Eisenhower made a Yes. 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 but he presided over that entire yeah. you know, era. Yeah, he did. No, he, he actually, that you can see, there's a, there's an introductory letter to the Doolittle Commission that was written by Eisenhower on July 26th of 1954, uh, where he very clearly embraces the idea of covert operations uh, against the Soviet Union and against communists and subversives. He basically drank the the Kool-Aid, you know, once he got once he got in there. And then at the very end, it's always easy when you get ready to leave to warn everybody else uh, that they ought to be careful about this, which, which it, he did, uh, but not to much avail. Truman himself said that one of the biggest mistakes he'd ever made in his life was uh, agreeing to have a central intelligence agency. Okay, so let's go on, let's go on over to Porter and uh, have our discussion.